Our great God and Heavenly Father, as we look now to this place in your word, in the book of Galatians, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and your calling of him on the road to Damascus and the new life that you represented in him through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you now would give us greater insight into this epistle, that we may understand more the fullness of your revelation in him, and that we might identify more and more with Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, today uh, we are looking at uh, the follow-up to what we saw last week in Galatians chapter 2. We were looking last time at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And we saw there the story of Peter and Paul at Antioch. And we're going to continue with the response that Paul gives uh, to this situation. Well, last time, uh, first of all, we were looking at the uh, statement that Paul begins to give in verse 14 of chapter 2. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then he goes on, just to begin with verses 15 and 16. We by... We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, nevertheless knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this section that continues and follows after the verses that we've read, continues on a theme that we've seen throughout the letter so far and that we saw throughout the narrative. And that was the contrast of that which is according to men and that which is according to God. Right? And we saw that that contrast was a contrast between this age and the age to come. And so this age being according to man, and this being according to Christ. And that Christ was especially manifest to Paul and manifest in him on the road to Damascus as the Son of God, the sonship of the Son of God, and we as sons possessing in him an inheritance which is above. We as sons, now even as Gentiles, being made full sons in the Son of God, now possess the fullness of the end of the ages. So the sonship of the Son of God was a real specific revelation of what the Son means, okay, in his person and for us in the fullness of the times. And that's embodied in Paul as Paul is interacting, first of all, as he goes on his mission in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 as he interacts with the Jerusalem church 
and represents to them the Son of God in opposition to those Judaizers who do not want to treat the the Gentiles as sons of God, who want to go back to the former era in the history of redemption and give full privileges of sons only to the Jews. Okay, And so Paul represents, no, the fullness of the revelation in Christ and opposes them, and the Jewish apostles see that. They understand that. And they have that understanding in the narrative which brings the transition to fellowship between them. But then we see what happens in the drama in chapter 2, verse 14. But when Peter came to Antioch, You see, they had left the Jerusalem of this world. They surpassed that. Now, when Peter comes to the Gentile region of Antioch, Paul opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. Because he was acting the part of a hypocrite. A hypocrite who looks to man, you see, who looks and seeks his approbation in man, not in God and not in Christ. So to the degree that Peter went back in the history of redemption, he was going back to this world and living a life according to man. And that had to do with him separating himself from the Gentiles and going back to the food laws of the Old Testament era as a requirement for salvation. Now, you see, Paul rebukes him And he has this strong language, you see, of Jew-Gentile, Jew-Gentiles, Jews. All right, in that last verse of 14, wanting to show that Peter is wrong in distinguishing the Jew from the Gentile in Christ, wanting to bring about a rebuke that will bring him back to his senses and to live life in the Son of God. And we will see the Son of God here in this section as the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is going to express, you see, again, his autobiography as a part of his rebuke. Now, that means that I'm suggesting to you that the aspect of the fullness of the revelation that's now in Christ informs everything that he says, even about the doctrine of justification. Because this is a rebuke to Peter in his going back to the Old Testament economy. And it is Paul speaking of the fullness of the revelation that has come in Christ, which he represents. So when he's saying that he's died in Christ and risen with him, you see, and that he's justified in him, he's speaking of this fullness of salvation that is now in Christ Jesus, which he is embodying in contrast to that Judaizing. All right, so as we look at this, I want you to, we're going to prod each other to see that there is this fullness of revelation, all right, that is revealed in this. And this would make sense because that's what the narrative has been doing and embodying it in the life of the Apostle Paul himself. And thus, for the Gentile church, calling the Galatian church to embody it in their lives as well. Calling us to embody that in our lives as well and to see our lives in Christ Jesus in the fullness of the times. Well, um, 
as you look at um, the beginning, just to show you that this is in fact true of the narrative in verses 15 and following, to show you that it indeed is connected to the incident in Antioch, I want to show you a few hook words that, that make that connection. Okay, Look at verse 15. There is a hook word there in verse 15 that is also found in verse 14. Can someone see it? Word that was emphasized in 14. Gentiles. Gentiles. Yes, Ben. Gentiles. See, we who are Jews by nature and not Gentiles from among, uh, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Okay. So he's responding to this issue of the Jew and Gentile uh, situation there at Antioch. Now I'm going to suggest to you this is the case even if if Paul now is is saying things that he didn't actually say to Peter at that time. There's a debate in New Testament scholarship about whether verses 15 and following are a continuation of what Paul said to Peter at the time, or whether verse 14 ends what Paul said to Peter. And we begin with Paul now speaking the implications of that to the Galatians. And other people see the transition taking place somewhere between 15 and 21, that Paul uh, moves. I want to say whatever decision one might make on that, okay, uh, and Calvin thought that 15 and following actually was Paul just speaking now to the Galatians, didn't think it was Peter. So there's, there's one person who thought that, and there's others who thought it was continuation. Whatever view you take on that, Notice that verse 14 plays off of the incident in Antioch. It is a response to that incident in Antioch. Okay, And I'm going to suggest that simply by the placement of what Paul is saying here. we got that hook word that brings us into that, and then we have Paul. He's responding, obviously, to the previous situation. His words go with that event. Okay? And then, and you'll notice something else that connects it to the narrative, I think perhaps subtly. And that is verse 16 has a word in it that we saw was critical uh, in the recognition, the recognition scenes in the narrative in chapter 2, verse 9 specifically, and then again in chapter 2, verse 14. There's a word in verse 16 similar to those. It may be significant. Someone recognizes something. They are then said to blanket. Okay, it's an I-N-G word in a lot of translations. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Knowing. Now, I ask you, is, is Paul perhaps reflecting back on the narrative? You see, in chapter 2, Verse 9, he'd said, in a sense, that the Jewish 
apostles knew something, and then they came to recognition. And then he, in chapter 2, verse 14, he sees this, okay, or uh, seeing. We've got the seeing and knowing combination. Uh, he, therefore, recognized that Paul, that Peter was not acting straightforward with the truth of the gospel. And so, is he now saying, now that we know this, from all these recognition scenes, you see, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, perhaps. Well, let's jump on. I just wanted to show you the connection, some possible connections there. But now, let's look at this aspect of justification. This is, this is very, very central to especially verse 16. And you see that I've kind of laid out for you on your handout a group of words that, that uh, we might find repeated in the section. And the, the outer parts we have not justified, and the first one is a man is not justified, and then we have all flesh not justified. And then you can see works by works of the law under not justified, and then at the bottom, not by works of the law, by works of the law, not. Okay, kind of a reversal there. And then perhaps these two sentences in the in, in second to the center, then in the middle, we have believed in Christ Jesus. Paul is, this is important to him. He keeps repeating words, you see. He keeps repeating phrases. He's being emphatic here. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, first of all, I would like us to kind of remind ourselves of the classical doctrine of justification uh, as it was spelled out by the Protestant reformers. Okay, And I'm going to begin by reading you a statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith which is the confession of faith that the church uh, in whose building we are now meeting adopts. Chapter 11, the first section. And it's a very nice uh, statement of justification. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith They have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Now, there's a lot of things in that statement uh, that are significant, and it's significant even in the history of doctrine, because a lot of this, of course, is a response to whom? Who who taught a different doctrine of justification? Who then instantiated that in a council in the 16th century and eternally condemned all of those who believed that justification was by grace alone through faith alone. Very good. Thank you, Ben. The Council of Trent by the Roman Catholics, right? 
So we have a contrast here between the Reformation's view of justification, whether it be Lutheran or Reformed, and the Roman Catholic. All right. And notice what the beginning of the statement says. Not by infusing righteousness into them. Freely justifieth them, not by infusing righteousness into them. Does any do who believes that we are justified by infusing righteousness into us? Roman Catholics. Okay. So this is infusion of righteousness, and this is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is, Christ's righteousness is declared to be ours by Christ clothing us with his righteousness. So part of this is that the Reformation then would distinguish between justification, which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and sanctification, which is God's work by the Holy Spirit in us. Okay. Roman Catholics do not make that distinction, so in effect they have a justification slash sanctification, or better, a sanctification slash justification. You are justified by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life and the degree to which that looks good to God. Now, sometimes I've used an illustration to, to uh, clarify what justification and sanctification means, uh, an illustration that maybe you can use for little kids. Um, I have a little child, and she goes to the beach, and uh, there's some places where I experienced as a child going to the beach, and you get tar all over us, okay? And that child, in the, after, in the evening, that child is supposed to go home and to a party with a family, and she's supposed to look nice and clean for all the guests. And so what does mom do? Mom tries to clean the tar off the child. But in this particular case... This tar is pretty sticky, and mom doesn't get all the tar off the child. And so what's she going to do? The guests are going to see all this tar in the child's arms and legs. So mom puts on a nice summertime, a nice cotton, long sleeve garment, perhaps long pants or, or, or long skirt. Okay, And then the guests don't see the tar. But does that mean that mother is going to let the child go and, and never clean the child up? No. After the party, mom is going to keep cleaning up her daughter to clean her up, all right? Like God does to us in sanctification. So, as the guests see the robe, so God as a judge sees our perfect righteousness in Christ Jesus. We are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But as a father, he still cleans us up inside. He still works by his Holy Spirit to take the black stains of remaining sin from our lives. So he works in both justification and sanctification, but the two are clearly distinct. The Roman Catholics would leave this poor child at the party with nothing to cover the tar and hope that, you know, maybe she'd look good enough for the guests. All right? But, you see, that is a big problem, not only for the child, but for us. Because if we stand before a holy God with remaining sin and do not have the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness upon us, God is a perfect judge and God will condemn us 
for our sins. God as judge looking upon those sins would condemn us. And then what would be the just cause for him giving us his Holy Spirit? How could his Holy Spirit live in a condemned human being? It could not. So this does away ultimately with all grace. It's only because we are justified in Christ Jesus and declared to be perfectly righteous before a holy God that his spirit may dwell within us. This is what the Protestant Reformation argued. Luther calling it, of course, that article upon which the church stands or falls. Now, this is a very central doctrine to our faith. And it is being assailed today, and a little bit later in this class, I will tell you about some of those who are assailing this doctrine. And I think, you know, at some other time, for your benefit, you may want to read through the rest of that chapter. And you will read at the end of this, Section 6, which says the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Okay, In all the respects that the Westminster Confession lays out, the justification of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints was the same. And the implication, if you read the Puritans, is that that justifying work of grace in Old Testament saints was even mediated through that old covenant, that old covenant of grace. Okay, So we do not want to see here in anything I'm going to suggest to you or uh, I think anything in Paul, uh, a notion, and I, I don't know where my pen is, but it's pretty in my pocket perhaps now. There it is. Um, we don't want to see, I don't believe, in anything that Paul says here, any implication that Old Testament saints were justified either by works or or any implication that they were not justified by means of the Old Covenant. That Old Covenant, which was, in fact, essentially a covenant of God's redemptive grace, as God, in fact, implies the same in Exodus 20, when he says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. So when he brings this old covenant, he begins it with grace. I am the Lord your God who took you by the hand out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I did it by redemptive grace, you see. And then as a result of that redemptive grace through the old covenant itself, God then gives them all the blessings of salvation as a people. Those people in Israel who truly believe this promise, who truly believe that God has brought a saving work, and who truly trust in that promise and lay hold of Christ to come through it, those people receive their justification through those promises, administered through that wonderful covenant that God gave to Israel. And so they are justified by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, as we were, as we are. 
And so there's essential unity between Old Covenant saints and New Covenant saints in this justification. Any questions or comments about that before I go on? Okay. Then, if this is the case, I ask you, why does Paul introduce the subject of justification into the context of food laws? Peter has just gone back to the Old Covenant food laws, and he, in effect, has separated himself from the Gentiles. How come Paul introduces the subject of justification here? Why does he introduce the subject of justification? Someone might respond, for instance, to to uh, Paul. Paul, why are you getting? Why are you bringing up this issue of justification when it comes to Peter keeping the food laws? I mean, weren't Old Testament saints who kept the food laws weren't they justified by grace alone through faith alone? Yeah, they were. So, why do you bring up this issue of justification, Paul? And I'm ultimately going to suggest to you that the answer to that is because Paul is seeing that now in Christ Jesus, this justifying work of God's grace implies the greater benefit of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Now a justification given to Jew and Gentile alike implies the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And Peter is not recognizing that when he goes back to the food laws. And Paul is therefore rebuking him with justification. Now part of the answer there, of course, and, and, and this is what I'm going to be trying to argue here uh, as, as we follow this. Remember, the, the, the overall perspective that I'm suggesting to you is that Paul is representing the Son of God, right? The very life of the Son of God in his person. And here he's also representing that, I would say, in his either rebuke to Peter or even if it's simply rebuke given to the, to the Galatians, which follows off of Peter. Is that here, that is, he is trying to say it's a gospel not according to man, but according to Christ, right? And... Uh, we have any? Uh, Pete doesn't hear this time, so I don't get any extra pens from him. And we didn't have any in the other room. I, I, thanks. Uh, according to Christ versus according to man. Now, if I'm right, then Peter, you, that Paul, you see, who says later that the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me, I, I've died, and, uh, I've been crucified with Christ, and I live in the Son of God. He is expressing this new age, you see, when he rebukes Peter for going back to the food laws. I think we can, if we don't think of the doctrine of justification for a minute in this mix, that might be easy enough to consider, right? Is that he could, you can see easily how Peter, Paul would rebuke Peter for going back to the Old Testament food laws if the age of the Spirit has come in a fuller way, right? Thank you, Jim. Now the question becomes, how does this relate to justification then? 
How does this relate to justification? And I'm going to suggest to you kind of in two ways. And the first of those is that we here have the justification of the Gentiles, right? You see. And that's what Paul is saying here, you see. If you look at verse 15, he says, We knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Even we have believed. Knowing that a man, a person in general even, is not justified by works of the law. So if, if, if Peter, if you're willing to acknowledge that these Gentiles are justified, or can be justified, then you should acknowledge that they aren't justified by works of the law. Peter, by you going back to the food laws in this strict sense and implying that the Gentiles should keep them in order to have fellowship with you in table fellowship, you are implying that these Gentiles have to keep the works of the law in order to be justified. And so, no, that's not the case. In the fullness of the ages, God has brought his salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. Gentiles who remain Gentiles. Okay? Gentiles who don't become Jews by circumcising themselves and taking on the fullness of the purity codes of the Old Testament. But Gentiles who remain Gentiles. So you see, Gentiles are justified by grace. And so, at the end, where he says, in effect, that since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No flesh. Meaning, Jew and Gentile alike, you say, will not be justified by the works of the law. So he's expanding this universally. Okay. But... And, and, I, and I think this would fit in with what we see in verse 14. What we see in verse 14 is Paul says to Peter, uh, or not says to him, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all. The truth of the gospel here being, I mean, what was Peter not straightforward with? I mean... He must be not straightforward with the truth of the fullness of the gospel that's now come in the new age, right? Because what was he, I mean, what he was doing by following these food laws in the strict sense, was that in accordance with the good news revealed in the Old Testament? In terms of that period in the history of redemption, was he inconsistent with the Old Testament economy by keeping food laws where he was going to restrict himself for table fellowship with Gentiles? No, that was fully in accordance with the Old Testament economy, right? So when he says he's not acting as straightforward with the truth of the gospel, he's saying he's not acting in accordance with the new age, okay, in Christ Jesus. And therefore, verse 15 follows right after that. You see a man is, is Jew and Gentile, justified by faith in Christ. And so we have here a relative contrast to the old covenant of period, that is, relatively speaking, because we have one age of grace followed by a greater age of grace, right? 
All right? It's not like we have two different things of two different natures. One age of grace followed by another age of grace, not an age of works followed by an age of grace. One age of grace followed by another age of grace. Now, I've suggested to you how this is connected to the previous narrative already. And, and that would, uh, but we've got this one aspect of Gentiles coming in, and I'm going to suggest to you that, that there's something else going on here, and that is that the way justification is administered in the New Covenant period is more abundant. Okay? So it's not only that Gentiles are entered in, but there's greater abundance in the New Testament period. Now, if I'm right about this, then it would result from having some sense of looking back at the Old Testament food laws. Let's, uh, let's take a look at a, at a few texts that deal with the Old Testament food laws. Leviticus 20, verses 22 to 26, first of all. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So. And would someone like to read for us Leviticus 20, 22 to 26? Stephen, do you have it in the back? Okay, why don't you go ahead. 22. Yeah, a 20 verses 22 to 26. Okay. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Okay. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you here, as we look at this text, is that we're moving from a situation in which the food laws are connected to Israel's life in the land and the blessings that they receive in this inheritance in this land. Okay. The land blessings is a part of what the food laws are a part of. It's not that is definitely not the final essence of their nature, but it's a part of what's going on here. Uh, and then I'm going to suggest to you that in effect, there is no more food laws here because now we have come 
to this inheritance above, which is realized in perfection. So uh, I'm going to say this perhaps another way. Israel is living in a land, okay, where by means of their obedience and disobedience, they are receiving blessing or curse in the land, okay? And yet, when Christ comes, he takes the fullness of the curse upon himself and is raised from the dead into the heavenly places so that there is no curse in this inheritance that we have here in heaven itself. Okay. I'm going to to say this to you. In a a few minutes, I'm going to try to connect this to the regular doctrine of justification. But let's just start with the basics of what I have in mind here. That what you have with the food laws is, notice verse 22, you are therefore to keep all my statutes and my ordinances to do them so that the land in which I am bringing you will not spew you out. Okay? Keep all the laws. Now, the laws are not just the food laws. Okay, the food laws follow on this, so they're part of it. But he had just previously been speaking about moral law as well. Okay, so by means of Israel's obedience to the moral law and the food laws in this context, they are to keep themselves from being spewed out of that land. Okay, they are therefore to remain holy in this land and set apart in this land as opposed to being cursed in that land. Now, that curse that you see there, that is going to remind you about the imperfections of this era. And I'm going to suggest to you that insofar as this curse lies upon the true saints of God in Israel, is it a true curse? No, it's not a true curse. Insofar as it's upon the saints of God, it is one of the shadows of the Old Testament. Okay, Just like they had the shadow of the imperfection of Christ's, uh, uh, the shadow of the fact that Christ's sacrifice had not yet come. They had those shadows of the sacrifices of bulls and goats, right? Those sacrifices were shadows representing the fact that the curse of God had not been born yet in redemptive history. So they were reminded of their sins over and over again by these sacrifices. Okay, So there's the shadow sacrifice, if you will. And that, for them, also there's also a shadow curse. There's also a shadow curse, a curse upon the land that reminds them of their sins continuously. For the unbelieving in Israel, it was truly a curse, but not for the saints. But God had determined that by means of their obedience, they would alleviate this curse and bring blessing. Now, another place that that hints at this is Leviticus 26. I'm just going to read a few of those, uh, have you read a couple verses, a few verses here. And Leviticus 26, 3 to 5. Somebody want to read 3 to 5? 
If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their years so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in the land. Okay. So... Again, if you keep walking my statutes, which includes all the statutes here in Leviticus, then you will have blessings in the land. And then the opposite is found in verses 27 and 28. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. So... We have this situation in Israel where the food laws are part of the life of Israel in the land. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to try to diagram this for you in a way that I've sometimes diagrammed before. Explain how in the world, how in the world could we talk about these curses upon Israel? Okay. How do we talk this way? And at the same time, talk about being justified by grace alone through faith alone. Because what I'm suggesting to you is that Peter, when he went back to the food laws, he was acting as if he was going back to an inheritance where there was blessings and cursings. He was acting as a Jew with a Jewish eschatology. The Jewish eschatology of that time. Think back to the land of Israel. The Jewish eschatology of that time is if we can obey the law properly, then we can get rid of the Romans. You see, we're enslaved. We're a people enslaved and under curse in terms of Leviticus 26. Okay, And if we can obey the law righteously and cause other Jews to do the same, then, you see, we will be able to overthrow the Romans and we will uh, perhaps eventually bring in the kingdom of God. Okay, this at least was some uh, one perspective of some of the Jews. Getting other Jews to obey the law. What do they have going on here? What are the men from James doing implicitly? Are they not getting another Jew to obey the law? Are they not getting Peter to obey the law? Is it possible, therefore, that they are still being influenced by a Jewish eschatology unwittingly to some extent? And that Peter is unwittingly giving in to a Jewish eschatology where he's assuming implicitly, like the Jews of old, that this situation of Leviticus still continues on into their present time, you see, and is unwittingly assuming that 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 is the way we're going to bring the age of grace and the Spirit, bring in the eschatological hope. Well, that's part of my suggestion. And... How do I how do I how do I uh, make that suggestion in light of the fact that Old Testament saints are justified by grace through faith? Well, this is the way I account for it because 
you know, you got this problem here. If they're cursed to the degree that they disobey, how can that be? Right? How can it be that they're cursed to the degree that they disobey? Because they're justified, aren't they? Aren't the Westminster Standards right that they're justified by grace through faith? And, and therefore, they're not under the curse anymore. So how can it be said that they are cursed? How can it be said of any of these that they are cursed? And here, I, I try to explain this by making a distinction that Augustine makes between the visible and invisible church. Okay. In the invisible church, we have the saints who are justified by faith, by grace. All right. In fact, let's, let's clarify what the invisible and visible church are. The invisible church is all the saints of God, right? Genuine elect throughout the ages. But the visible church, is it just the saints? The visible church, I mean, even here today, I mean, or if we had a church gathering, would everybody in the church, even members of the church, would they all be the elect saints of God? Does Jesus not tell some of those who perform miracles in my name, I never knew you? Right? So they were presumably part of the visible church. And yet he says at the end of the age, I never knew you. Right? So the invisible church, the visible church of God, includes those who are the elect and the reprobate. Okay? Whereas the, the invisible includes only the elect. Only the elect of God. Now, what happens when you have the church being a nation? Old Testament Israel, are they a nation? Are they part of are they partially declared to be a people according to physical descent from Abraham? Yes. Or at least being, you know, you get circumcised to become a physical descendant of Abraham by inclusion. So, yeah, they're a nation. They're a nation, okay? And so now, as a nation, you have a nation of people who are called the chosen people of God, but they're composed of elect and reprobate. And so, in terms of the visible manifestation of that nation, when they are cast, when they are defeated by their enemies, okay, when they are cast out of the land, they can said to be under curse, and that's why I'm drawing these lines here. They can said to be under curse. There's a curse, mix of curse and blessing. Outwardly, there's a visible sign of curse and blessing. But now, in terms of the invisible church, are the elect of God, are they truly justified? Yes. Therefore, they are truly not under the curse. You see? The shield of justifying grace is what surrounds this inner circle. <laughs> and they are shielded from the true wrath of God that is re represented in the land. And therefore, the curses on this land become merely types and shadows to them of the fact that they are waiting for Christ to accomplish their redemption. But for them, they are justified by grace through faith. And yet, 
they do experience the angst of being in a land where they're cast out because this land is part of their inheritance in God. I mean, their true inheritance is in heaven by grace. And this old covenant administers that inheritance to them by grace alone through faith alone, that inheritance above. But that heavenly inheritance is also represented in types and shadows in the land. And that land is cursed. And so they go into exile. They go into exile as a people. And Daniel will say in Daniel 9 that the curses of the covenant have come upon us. You see? They've come upon him, too. So even he says this even though he's justified by grace alone through faith alone, called one of the righteous in Israel. Yet the curses in some sense have come upon him as a shadow, you might say. As a shadow. And therefore he prophesies a day in which there will be everlasting righteousness. That is a righteousness that can never be reversed in all respects. See, the visible righteousness that Israel had in the land could be reversed. She could be cut off and separated from the, the, the visible presence of the Lord in the land. But in the future age, God will bring his people into an inheritance which can never be taken from them. They will have everlasting righteousness, as Daniel says in Daniel 9. Meaning, in that age, no one will take God's people out of their land. These are the prophetic land promises of the Old Testament. Made eternal, you see. We're not talking about some Jewish land in Palestine now. Because the prophets always put this with eternity. Not some thousand-year millennial kingdom or anything like that. It's eternity. And so that has arrived in Christ. That is what has arrived. You see, we have no more situation where there is curse in the visible arena for the true saints as opposed to blessing. The curse is only for the unbeliever who apostatizes from the faith. The unbeliever who apostatizes receives only eternal curse. And in that sense, they're like Old Testament reprobates who received eternal curse. But now, the final eschatological curse, even greater now in the New Covenant age, for those who apostatize against this faith. But for the saint, for the saint... Now, I would say we've got two circles that are without curse. Here, the elect okay, are, have no curse, and there is no curse in relationship to the inheritance. This is the inheritance principle. No curse in relationship to this inheritance. And therefore, those who reject this blessed inheritance... I mean, for a while, even a reprobate person could think of himself as in the church. And on the visible aspect of the church, he is not cut off from any land of inheritance, visibly. But it is when he rejects this that he then receives its judgment. Because outside of this blessing is judgment, eternal judgment. And we could have a three-dimensional thing here. We could have this circle for the elect. Behind this is a black circle for the reprobate. A black circle for the reprobate 
there, even though the visible church that he's a part of has the blessedness of God's new kingdom age, okay, because he partakes in the powers of the age to come in a, in, a, in a new way, visibly, okay, but truly a black circle of death for him, which is manifest as he uh, dies in unbelief or apostatizes from the faith and is utterly cursed. But now, no more curse, visible curse for the saints. No more being cast out of their inheritance. Where is your inheritance now? Is it in a land of Palestine? Is your inheritance in the United States? Better not be, especially now, right? Okay. <laughs> it's already been spent. It's, is your inheritance in any other earthly land? No. Not in any respect, you see. Not in any respect. So nothing that is called your inheritance in God is under curse, is it? Your inheritance is in heaven. Is there any curse there? No curse. It's all blessedness. And I would suggest to you that this is what the Apostle Paul means when he talks about the fullness of justification that has come in Christ. You see, he has language in Romans 1 to represent that. In Romans 1, 16 through 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. I am not ashamed because in it the righteousness. What righteousness? This eschatological righteousness, the righteousness that Daniel had prophesied that is everlasting and unreversible to Jew and Gentile. You see, in this age, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Unlike Daniel, who in Daniel 9 says he's ashamed and put to disgrace because of our sins, O Lord. He's ashamed. Paul says, I am not ashamed. Because the righteousness of God has been revealed now in Christ. The just shall live by faith. So that quotation from Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by faith, it's Full realization is found in the eschatological age, semi-realized now. Its full revelation is revealed now in this time that Christ has come and brought a righteousness that cannot be reversed. So when Paul uses the term justification in his New Testament sense, he is opposing anyone returning back to this former economy. He is opposing anyone returning back to this former economy. And you see, I'm suggesting to you that's why he brings up the issue of justification in Galatians 2 against Peter. When Peter returns to this older economy and follows the strict food laws of the Old Testament... Paul then opposes that with being justified by grace through faith. Because Paul's full sense of what it means to be justified now by grace through faith is involved in that rebuke. 
And you see what he's saying. He's saying insidious in that now if you do this after Christ has come, if you try to import this after Christ has come, what are you saying about what he brought? If you say, I'm still, God is still working through my sanctified grace to bring an inheritance which is without curse. Or bring an inheritance that has more blessing as opposed to curse. God's still working through me to bring a blessedness versus a curse in this in inheritance here. What are you saying about the inheritance he brought? Which is without curse in the heavens. It's like saying he didn't bring that. It's like saying he didn't bring this inheritance that is without curse in the heavens. It's like undermining this if you say, I'm still living by this and singing to bring blessing as opposed to curse, you see. I'm still acting as if my inheritance is in this world to some degree. And it's really worse than that because... If I disregard this when it comes, I fail to see that this pointed forward to this. David, when he he looked long to see my day, right? He realized that these things looked ahead to Christ to come, like the Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead to Christ to come. If you still required people to sacrifice now, would you recognize that Christ has come? If in order to get entrancy into the church... You had to go sacrifice a bull or a goat. Wouldn't I be denying that Christ has come? I'd be undermining what he did. So also, if I go back to this scheme, I am undermining what Christ has done in bringing a heavenly inheritance. You see? And so I'm saying it's like he didn't bring that. And I'm making this an end in itself. Old Testament saints realized it pointed to Christ. I'm saying no, even when Christ, has, this is still around. And so it doesn't point forward to anything beyond itself. It's the reality. That's what Jewish Judaism was doing by its eschatology at this point. Seeking to live by a works righteousness. Not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God that he has brought in Christ Jesus. Well, that's enough to chew on for a while. So we'll take a break, and uh, then you can plug me with your counterexamples if you think it's worth it. Now, just a, just a couple things to round off that discussion. I, I, I do realize that there, you have a situation in Daniel 1.8 <clears throat> where Daniel still keeps the, the food laws when he's outside the land. Uh, but I'm going to suggest to you that... Uh, probably because of some of the connections we've seen here already, that he's doing it as one who is still connected to the land just as he prays toward Jerusalem. Um, now, you may want to press me on that, but um, I think clearly by the time you come to the New Testament age and that, that has passed and we see that Peter recognizes that in the book of Acts as well. Um, yeah. Being outside the land doesn't put him outside the economy. Right. Thank you. Good. That's right. He's still in that economy. He's only looking forward to the future economy, right? Uh, 
the other the other thing is um, there is a debate amongst New Testament scholars as or a discussion within New Testament scholarship of what degree of requirement was were the James people pushing uh, for and what Paul was going for? In other words, uh, some some uh, make it sound like he's he's arguing for a real strict observance, some a less strict observance, and yet I don't really know that you have to resolve that question to see uh, that in either event uh, he is going back to the older economy. And Paul is opposing that with the fullness of justification that's come in Christ. Well, I want to ask now uh, how this then relates to the doctrine of justification we have seen and how the Roman Catholics also deal with it, too. Uh, I'm going to suggest that what you have the Judaizers doing is they are absolutizing this situation. You see, they are making it an end in itself. Okay, They're making it as if this situation of the Old Covenant continues where we have this situation of curse. But you see, now I'm not really drawing this inner circle anymore because they have made this cursed, blessed situation an end in itself and are ultimately denying the grace that is central to the old covenant economy. They are taking the external aspect of the Mosaic covenant and and making it an end in itself. It's this situation that shows that it's not, that the reality is what is going to come to fullness in Christ. When you deny the reality as it's come, you're ultimately denying the significance of grace in that older economy, and you're making that economy in its very nature a works covenant. Okay, A covenant of works. And then by implication, you see, you are saying that my ultimate justification is a result of my obedience to the works of the law. Okay, And I would suggest to you that this is what Paul realizes in Romans 9 when the Jews have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God that has come in Christ Jesus. Okay, And therefore, they sought it as if it were by works. They are seeking the kingdom as if it is by works. Because if you take righteousness in that context in Romans 10, he's talking about the kingdom righteousness. They're taking the kingdom as if it comes by works, and as a result, they're taking salvation ultimately as if it were by works and not by grace. By implication. Even if they may have some doctrine of grace in their system, ultimately, they are arguing for a works form of righteousness by implication. Now, how do the Roman Catholics deal with this issue? How do they deal with not of the works of the law, but by faith in Christ? Well, what they do is they relegate it to the ceremonial law exclusively. Okay? And as Thomas Aquinas says in his commentary on Galatians, you see, it's they were not justified by the old, if you will, ceremonial law. Instead, we're justified by the moral law and by 
the new ceremonies, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. So they fail to see, and I would suggest, what Paul has in mind here, that it's also the moral law. The moral law was also a means that God used in the sanctification of Israel to bring greater degrees of blessing as opposed to curse. Right? Their obedience to the moral law was, was most central to that, you see, as was their obedience to the ceremonial law. But, of course, the moral law, as it's come to its fullness in Christ, does not need to be a means of eliminating curse and bringing blessing in an earthly inheritance. It has its full realization in Christ, and therefore Paul continually quotes from the Old Testament moral law as a standard for New Testament Christians. Yes? How could either group... Uh, say that justification came by keeping the law ceremonial or otherwise when Genesis 15.6 was so clear in its pronouncement Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness yes I don't know how you get around that um, right now it's not coming to me how how they deal with that text in reference to this situation, at least Aquinas. Jim, do you have any thoughts? That no, faith is never outside the paradigm of right. Catholic. I mean, it's always there, but it's not does not have the central or justifying role. So the law has to complete what faith cannot complete. Good. Okay. Yeah, see that... Um, Within this, I mean, the reformers will say the faith that justifies, okay, also has fruits. But faith justifies insofar as it trusts in Christ, not insofar as it bears fruits of righteousness. Okay. Rome will not make that distinction. For them, faith justifies. It's faith formed by love that justifies. Um, now, I'm also responding to a... Yes? I may have missed it, but uh, you started out talking about the food laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're talking about the phrase works of law, uh, the works of the law, and you said that, that, uh, that Aquinas says, and the Catholics uh, say that... that uh, Paul here is only talking about the ceremonial law. Can you clarify for us, for me, what, what you mean by works of the law, or what Paul means here by works yeah. of the law? Or maybe you're getting there. And I mean, in a general, I mean, like Calvin says, it includes more than the ceremonial law. It includes especially the moral law. Okay. Um, what I'm going to say is he's making this antithesis by of faith to the works of the law, so he is, a, I could put works of the law here, meaning in my opinion that part of this is works of the law in its old covenant form, okay, in its proper form, was obedience to the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law, okay, not in its function, okay, of bringing blessing in the land as opposed to curse. Okay, So in that function, at least, that is works of the law. All right, And so I've got moral, ceremonial, and judicial involved in that. So then what happens in this age is these Judaizers absolutize that. 
and they have works of the law in big caps, all right, and they're making the moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws, again, by implication, the means of bringing in the kingdom of God and righteousness in the world. Okay. Um, and so I, I see Paul opposing the justification that that has now come in Christ, okay, with big J-U-S-T, justification, this fullness of justification. He's making he's making a He's making a relative contrast, in my opinion, to that former era in the history of redemption, where uh, the, moral, the obedience to the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law was a means of bringing in this blessing as opposed to curse. Uh, I say this is a relative contrast to that period because he recognizes, I believe, that this old covenant is essentially a covenant of grace, okay, and that these works of righteousness done by Israel... Okay, flow from righteous Israel, flow from the justifying work of grace given to them. Okay, that is, their justification by grace through faith, okay, is the ground for their obedience, is, is the presupposition of their obedience, and is therefore the reason why God will give them blessings in the land, ultimately. So because of this justifying verdict, that curse that's there can't be a real curse. It has to be merely a shadow for them. Okay. Uh, so there is just a relative contrast. But when the Jews absolutize these elements and make them an end in themselves, okay, then they are making this covenant what it never was. It never was in the previous history of redemption. And therefore we have... They're making this covenant... A, a covenant like the world would have, right? The world believes that by their works of righteousness and our obedience, you know, whether it be God's law or our law, it doesn't matter to many, you know, okay, it depends on who you are. You know, their works of obedience or their works, you see, their works, they're going to bring in blessedness in this world as opposed to curse, okay? So, so this, they are making this into a completely worldly uh, covenant, and in that respect, then the justification that has come in Christ Jesus now is an absolute antithesis to that. Okay, an absolute antithesis. I'll, I'll, I'll de we'll develop a little bit more of this in, in, in chapter three. But now, now there's a group saying there's a group called the New Perspective on Paul, and I should. Just give you a little bit, uh, knowledge of them. Uh, this group of scholars amongst New Testament scholars are saying that Jewish Christians, or it's not Jewish Christians, but Jews at this time believed in something called covenantal nomism, as they call it. Covenantal nomism, which is that the Jews believed that salvation was by grace, not by works, you see. And so we shouldn't be critiquing these Jews for believing that salvation was by works because they didn't believe that. They believed it was by grace. Okay. But I want to point out to you two things about the grace that they, these people argue for and claim the Jews had. It is a grace 
that is what I would call semi-Pelagian, and it is a grace that does not distinguish between justification and sanctification. It is like sanctification leading to justification. In other words, one of the main proponents of this, E.P. Sanders, argues all the time that they believe in God's grace at work in Israel. And therefore, Luther was wrong to compare them to the Roman Catholics, as many would say. Okay? But Roman Catholics also believe that God's grace works in the heart for justification. You see? As we saw in the Westminster Standards, they believe in infusion. Okay? They believe in the infusion of grace. They do not believe in a distinction between justification and sanctification. But they do believe in the infusion of grace. So all Sanders is arguing for is that at that point, they're like Roman Catholics, <laughs> implicitly. And the other thing is, the view of election and predestination that he imputes to the Jews is no better than semi-Pelagianism, ultimately. It is There is no genuine unconditional choosing for a particular elect group of people unto eternal salvation. So I would say he's not proved his point, in my opinion. And at best, he's left them with a Roman Catholic view of works righteousness. And I would add to that, with an eschatology because that's not refuted, with an eschatology that is works-oriented, as if we're going to bring the kingdom of God in by our works. And then I would claim that Paul sees in that eschatology something more devious still. I mean, if you could say more devious, something else devious in there. He sees in this eschatology of the Jew an implication, at least, that their works of righteousness are the absolute means of their salvation. So, I do not believe that these guys have made their case. And interestingly enough, one of the ways they keep trying to argue for their view uh, is by saying that, see, Paul brings up the history of justification when he's talking about inclusion of the Gentiles. And they might say... Well, what does the traditional doctrine of justification have to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles? Because the traditional doctrine of justification is justification is the same in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant alike in all respects, as they might characterize it. So, so then what does that have to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles? And what I'm trying to argue for is that, no, this grace that has come in Christ has to do, the fullness of the justifying verdict in Christ has to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles. See, once you aren't in a land anymore where there's holy distinctions between clean and unclean, then, as Mary pointed out to me at the break, you, you, you have a situation in which you can't make a distinction between clean and unclean groups of people, meaning Gentile versus Jew. Certainly, Paul makes a distinction between the unclean unbelievers, okay, and those who are clean in Christ, but not between particular national groups, okay? And, and so, 
That is done away with. The distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ is done away with once we pass by that land. So if we're dealing with this fullness of justification that's come in Christ Jesus, it explains why the issue of Jew and Gentile relations is part of what Paul talks about. And and therefore, it is related to the traditional doctrine of justification because this new justification that comes in Christ, the fullness of it, is the justifying verdict of of God in redemptive history. It reflects what God has done in the hearts of his people, now come to its fullness, visibly manifested. It's that justifying verdict here, already, just visibly more manifested. As the Westminster Standards say, in the future, it will be all the more visibly manifested to the world. Okay. Well, let's look at the text, unless you have any questions on that. Let's look back at the text again. Verse 17 of Galatians chapter 2. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we have found ourselves to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that this section, all the way to verse 21, represents the now, the result of this fullness of justification that has come in Christ. The fullness of this justification that's come in the new era in Christ Jesus. In other words, what do we have in verse 17? We've got a new kind of address. Anybody who's an English teacher might know this is not in the indicative mood, stating a fact. What is it? It's not an imperative, making a command. So it is a... It is an interrogative, right? Asking a question. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? A question. And then he answers it with a may it never be. Right? A may it never be. Where have I heard that before in Paul? There's a book that does this a lot. Asks questions and says, may it never be. Romans, right? Says that a lot. And sometimes... When Paul says in Romans, may it never be, like in 7, 7, and 13, he's saying, may it never be on the contrary, such and such. Okay. Now, it doesn't have that full force of on the contrary all the time. I mean, Romans 6, 2 may not have that same full force of that. But nonetheless, it can be on the contrary. And I'm going to suggest to you here that it has that sense. On the contrary, you see... It is, if I build up what I once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. So, here we have, if while seeking to be unjustified in Christ, we ourselves are found to be sinners, is Christ a minister of sin? In other words, if we've come to this New age in Christ. Is Christ then the minister of sin? Christ minister of sin? No. On the contrary. 
if I build up what I once destroyed, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. Who in this previous narrative was trying to build up what he once destroyed? Peter. Peter, yes. So he was trying to build up again that old covenant era, all right? And he was trying to build up what which was was once destroyed. And when you do that, you prove yourself to be a transgressor. Interesting. Paul seems to be saying that going backward in redemptive history is transgression. You are transgressing against the fullness of the revelation that has come in Christ Jesus. You see, you are working against the work of God. And in that sense, you are a transgressor. Yes? Is this only for those who consider, if they're going back to the law as a means of salvation? Um, because there were still believing Jews who still followed the dietary laws and, and right. other, but they didn't, that was not their, uh, the means of, or the ends of salvation. And I know believers today who, they are true believers by faith alone, but they still, they celebrate the uh, feasts and they celebrate the Jewish holidays because they like them better than our some of our uh, secular ways of celebrating our Christian holidays. Um, and they find in them greater fulfillment because they see Christ in them. It is not that they're trusting in them for salvation, not at all. So is, is this would this be those who then just, that's their end, of, that's their means of salvation? Not just by choice. Let's put it this way. At this time, okay, the time the letter is written, um, clearly, we're, we're dealing with a situation in which some of the Jewish apostles are keeping the Old Testament ceremonial law, right? Um, but not because they see it as necessary for salvation, okay? Once you impose it upon Gentiles, you are saying it is necessary for someone to be a Christian, and therefore it's necessary for salvation, okay? the key is imposed. Right. So in that sense, it is, it is a going back to this era as if it were necessary and as if it were essential to the kingdom of heaven. Exactly. Now, at the same time, uh, Augustine makes a distinction between those ceremonies as they were under the law and as they were practiced by the early apostles and then the period at when the temple was still around, and then afterwards, okay? And, I, and I, I have wondered about this kind of thing myself. Is, is it that, uh, that, and I'm taking this distinction from Aquinas. I haven't read Augustine on this point. This is what Aquinas says. He distinguishes Jerome from Augustine on this point, all right? Uh, and uh, 
from, August, from, from what Aquinas is suggesting here is that Augustine has in mind an, an earlier period where that obedience, uh, that actually following legal ceremonies was acceptable for a time. And as Aquinas puts it, so that God might show that that wasn't really paganism, so that God, anyway, God was actually telling the pagans to, te- to go away from all their feasts and so forth. But... Uh, but perhaps God was showing that this wasn't ultimately paganism. Originally it was true because he doesn't require them to leave it right away. But as the temple recedes, as that goes away, it's time for that to be done away with. And so that after that period, uh, that is not some, something one should, should, should engage in. Okay. Um, and I've wondered about the book of Acts myself and that continuation of the temple and that being connected to Paul's willingness to take a vow and so forth and and, and maybe even Acts 15 uh, being in there. Um, I tend to believe that those who are still engaging in, in the ritual sacri- I mean in, in Old Testament rituals today like Messianic Judaism, they I don't believe are recognizing this reality that's come in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're dealing here with first-century Jews that are part of that previous economy. There's a transitional thing going on here. I tend to think that's part of what's going on. I don't see that when I look at Messianic Judaism necessarily. I don't see it in other movements that, especially, want to enforce Old Testament theocratic penalties, whether it be Reconstructionism or who want to bring back the sacrificial system in a future millennium like the dispensationalists. Um, any thoughts, Jim, you want to add to this? No, I think the oldest gospel is the fourth gospel, and the gospel of John is, I think, written after the uh, destruction of the temple. And you have the focus on the fe- festivals of Judaism in the fourth gospel in a way which replaces and displaces them. In other words, he presents Christ as the fullness of those sacrificial and uh, festival observances, Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, uh, Hanukkah, etc. And he does so intentionally. He does so to show that by the time he's writing, Whatever we say for this uh, kind of tolerant interim, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's over. Can't go back there anymore. Good. I like that. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you notice I, I, I brought in a few other movements, you know, and. Uh, Christian Reconstructionism being one, and I always wondered 10 or 15 years ago whether they would eventually deny the doctrine of justification because I see that implicit in Paul's rejection, you see, of that position. And I'm not saying all of them have because there's been defenders in that movement who have defended the doctrine of justification, but surprisingly a number who have rejected it and partially connected to their eschatological perspective, as I see it. Well... um, Yes. In verse 17 there, where he says, uh, if we ourselves have also been found sinners, mm-hmm. uh, he must then be referring to the distinction of Jew and Gentiles. Like in verse 15 where he says, 
we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. He's not talking about sinners in the sense of... Uh, yeah, very interesting question, Ben, and I wasn't going to deal with that because I haven't come down on it, but... Um, there are people who say, you see, because sinners from among the Gentiles in verse 15 seems to put sinners with Gentiles. And uh, there's uh, a place in, in the Gospels where actually you, you look at Christ's discourse and, 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 and at one time it's, he uses Gentiles in a certain sentence and another time he uses sinners in that same sentence in a different uh, time. Uh, and so that this can often sinners be a reference to Gentiles. And so then they interpret this as that we ourselves have been found to be Gentiles. If seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves are found to be Gentiles, in a sense. Is Christ a minister of sin? Well, uh, the, my initial response is to say I'm, I'm hesitant to restrict it to that reference, okay? Especially by the use of the question, the rhetorical question that comes afterward, is Christ then the minister of sin? Okay, and the way I'm taking sin here in its more pregnant sense, not just Gentile, but sin per se, to be going back to rebuild what you once destroyed, including Peter, you see, is going back to rebuild what he once destroyed. Yes. Um, well, again, it could it could be, and, and, and this is one reason I didn't want to bring it up because I don't think I fully figured it out, but it could be that he's saying that uh, we have found ourselves to, that we are sinners, okay, uh, that we are sinners in need of justification, all right? On the other hand, uh, other suggestion is that we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ in them, is is it if if, Christ, if if we have been justified in Christ and now found to be sinners? In other words, if you're saying, Peter, that these Gentiles are justified in Christ, and yet now you're calling them sinners unjustified, okay, which would fit with what you're saying about Gentiles. But then I don't see how that fits with the rest of the question. Is then Christ then a minister of sin, okay? Well, and so I've hesitated. Um, if he's saying you're not just a, if, you're, if he's saying you have to follow these dietary laws and other things to be justified, but I, but Paul is saying you're justified by Christ alone, then he's asking Peter, are you saying that these Gentiles who are justified in Christ alone are sinners because they're not following the law? Yes, and that, that's one approach to taking that that statement that that you're you're both referring to. So. Um, I'm going to leave that open right now. So, uh, but here I still I'm, I'm still suggesting that the culmination of this question has uh, Christ then a minister of sin, and then the next thing of prove ourselves to be transgressors if we rebuild what we once destroyed, and so that sin uh, going back in redemptive history is transgression, at least as I see it here. Um, and I think that fits with the argument I'm trying to suggest to you that Paul is again once again focusing on the fullness of the new age in Christ. And then, how does he follow this up? With a recognition of fuller, what we call semi-eschatological life. Okay, All the way from 2.19 through the end of the chapter. For instance, you've got 
living unto God in 2.19. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave and delivered himself up for me. Now, you can hear just in my reading of that how many lives we have there. And it just goes on and on. And I don't have a real structure for you, but I, I did try to set out for you the, the comparison of terms at the bottom of page two of your handout where you can kind of see where I put the live, live, lives in uh, the farthest column to the right there. Um, now, interestingly enough, Calvin in his commentary here looks back to Ephesians chapter 2 where we've been raised with Christ in the heavenly places and mentions other places in Paul where that's talked about, and specifically says of this text that it's talking about us living in the heavenly places. So that we both live in the heavenly places now as well as on the earth. And I think he's right. I think a living unto God now, you see, is a living in the presence of God. It is that greater heavenly life that we now participate in in the new age in Christ Jesus, living unto God. And you've got a parallel uh, in Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Um, someone, want to read, someone wants to read that for us. Actually, this is 10, 10 and 11, or excuse me, um, 10 and 11. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay. And there it has that repetition of alive to God and then alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, in our text, we have alive to God and live to the Son of God, or live by faith in the Son of God, which we'll look at a little bit later. Um, well, I'm suggesting to you that this is the life that results from the righteousness. And Paul in Romans has this contract, uh, couplet of righteousness and life. And this new life arises out of the justifying verdict of righteousness in the new age. And therefore, life results, I believe. Now, he's got it um, in this context here. You see, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And he says that right after he says, through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Well, what does he mean? I think this is in the context of justification again. And so, what does he mean by, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God? I personally take this as parallel to the language of, I've been crucified with Christ. So, I, through the law, died to the law to live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and 
I no longer live. My suggestion to you here is that I, through the law, died to the law, is parallel, again, to I have been crucified with Christ. I, through the law, died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, if I'm right, and this is my explanation for it, is that how is it through the law that I died to the law? I died to the law through the law's curse upon Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. You see, later in this in the next chapter, he's going to talk about Christ taking upon himself the curse of the law um, by becoming a curse for us, 313, uh, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the curse of the law coming upon Christ is what I believe causes us to die to the law. Some people have seen this as, no, it's just, it's just more of a general statement about you know, the law's condemnation upon me as an individual, uh, not relating that to Christ. But then if that's the case, just because the law stings me, am I alive to God? Well, maybe you could say if it stings me savingly, I'm alive to God, perhaps. But I think it's more likely that it's to be taken as these two being parallel. And we have something like that happening in Romans uh, 7, the first part of that uh, passage. And uh, so uh, someone want to read for us uh, verses 1 to, well, we can just read verse 4 for the sake of time, Romans 7, 4. Well, then we, we should read 1 to 4, we should read 1 to 4. Somebody got that? 1 to 4. Chapter 7. Do you know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage, so that if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law. And is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Okay, now admittedly, this one, verse 4, speaks more of me made to die to the law through the body of Christ. See, here we got died to the law, but here in chapter 7, it's through the body of Christ. Okay? And my suggestion is that these two ideas are together in Paul there in Romans 7. That is, through the crucifixion of Christ, I died to the law through the crucifixion of Christ. And this in my mind, would re-strengthen this connection between this sentence, I, through the law, died to the law, I have been crucified with Christ, that these two most likely go together. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about that, but, but I, I see that as, as, as very likely the parallel. Um, and then 
he's dying at least this way. He's dying to that older era in the way that I suggest we spoke about it before. You see, he's rebuking Peter. Peter doesn't recognize he's died to the law through the body of Christ. Paul embodies that. I, through the law, died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Look what he's implying. He's implying, at least, that I no longer live. I live to God. He died to the law. Living to God and no longer living to myself are the opposite of the law in some respect. Okay. Um, and I would suggest that, therefore, this is partially living to myself. Not ultimately, but there is some way in which I no longer live to myself, which was something he was doing under the law. And I put, I put these all in little small letters because I think he's making a relative contrast between that older era and the present era in the history of redemption. So that insofar as he was working to, through his sanctified obedience, store up the blessings in the land, there is still a remnant of living to oneself involved in that. There is still a shadow of living to oneself involved in that, even though ultimately that was still a life unto God. There is still a small aspect of living to oneself there, which then has been done away with through the crucifixion of Christ, that, so that now he lives unto God in the fullest eschatological sense. In that fullness of the end of the ages. And so that's what I'm suggesting. He's then embodying himself, you see. He's saying Peter was like living to himself to some degree. And especially as you absolutize that now in this present period, now it's truly living unto oneself. Ultimately. And he's died to that through the through cross of Christ, through this event in redemptive history, that he might live unto God in the fullness of the times. And so you have this language of living unto God, no longer living unto myself. Okay. And you see, yes? Do you read Christ to the law, died to the law, that he might live unto God? Yes. And therefore... The identification between the apostle being crucified with Christ is also identification with the Christ who has become alive unto God and died unto the law. Good. Yes. Yes. That there, when you're starting to penetrate that more, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what happened to Christ himself in his own act, you see. Thank you, Jim. And so this is what brought the turning point of redemptive history. And if we had time, I'd show you that I think living unto God and living unto Christ are also parallel here. Is he claiming the deity of Christ, you see? And this is that, you see. I don't nullify the grace of God. This life, that life of Christ that has now brought the fullness of the ages, that was embodied in me. You see, the, remember the grace by which he was called? 
embodied in me. I do not nullify this grace of God embodied in me. Because if righteousness could have actually come by the law, if the eschatological age of righteousness could have come by the law, like you Jews are implying, you can bring an eschatology by your righteousness. If righteousness could have come by the law, Christ died needlessly. It is his death and implicit resurrection as I live to God, you see. It is that which is the turning point of the ages. And Paul sees his whole life, you see, in union with Christ Jesus, embodied in this the way he lives even in his interaction here back in Antioch. And he is expressing that and bringing the rest of the church into that to get them to sense that they also have died with Christ and have been raised with him and in him live unto God. And that is you. There is no longer need to live unto yourself and for your glory. That has been done aside. Put that aside. Put aside glorying in the flesh. Making your ego propped up. Making yourself better than others. You have been raised with Christ. Your life is not in those things. Your glory is not in those things. It is in Christ and his resurrection and this glorious new age that he has brought. Revel in that. Live in him and realize that all of this expresses his eternal love for you who loved me eternally and gave himself up for me. This love being so powerful, it brought this greater new age, and you have been part of it. You are made a part of it in Christ our Lord. Well, that's it. Any questions? Yes, Stephen? When Paul says uh, that he died to the law, through the law, through the law, is that... How is it that he's dying through the law? Is this is this in the fact that Christ bears the curse of the law? I think that's a part of it. Um, you know, I think I, I'm going to go back to the Galatians four text. We see uh, that he, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Okay, and so he, if you will, I think I'm going to. I would implicitly, you know, whether it's here or not. Imp- at some point here, implicitly, he kept the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law. He brought, he did it perfectly. So he didn't just bring blessings in the land of Canaan. He brought the eschatological age, but he, therefore, that's why he could bear the curse of the law, you see, and be raised into the heavenly places, and that we could experience that new life in him. Right. So I'm suggesting through the law, then, is connected with Christ and his work, and, and I, I, I was focusing on the death of Christ in this particular uh, point, but I think it includes more. Yeah. This is uh, always quite well, it is off topic, but with Paul's uh, very uh, stinging rebuke of Peter, mm-hmm. how does the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, say with a straight face that they're 
Well, some of them got around it by, uh, well, in Aquinas, he says this should be a lesson to uh, prelates to uh, accept rebukes by their under-prelates or something like that, you know. Um, and, uh, but you're right, they have a problem with the, the, the infallibility of the pope if Peter is the first pope. And I, and I don't really know what their response is. Jim, again, do you, do you have a... He wasn't sitting on his chair. Remember that infallibility. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Fallibility only belongs to ex cathedra statements. All right. Speaking from the pontiff. There you go. All right. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. You're dismissed.